Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, happy Friday, happy whatever day it is when you're listening to this podcast. This is Rob O'Donoghue, and I'm delighted to have you here for another episode, one that certainly talks about mental health and mood but in a different way than we did a couple of weeks ago and probably again in the the near future but a very fascinating insight that will come with Ted Dynan. Just before we get on to that just a few call outs as I like to do in the last seven days things that cropped up. One very sad piece of news personally was Arsene Wenger the Arsenal football manager deciding to call time at the end of the season. A man that has been stable in my life for 21 years which is probably a unique situation from a male perspective but uh, very sad to hear that go just wanted to make a note of that and commemorate that news on the podcast front release Sarah Abbott's episode last Friday the second part and have had a few new people reach out that hadn't heard of the podcast before in the back of that so that's always nice and always interesting to hear their thoughts and feedback and it was all pretty good so happy days there i released the second one minute monday video on monday <laughs> there we go one minute monday on monday and this one i was kind of toying with a few different ones to do but i tied it again into the time to think book that i talk about a good bit if you haven't checked it out it only takes a minute it's on the website under the video link there's last monday's and the previous and i have a bunch more lined up just one other thing i did over the weekend just gone i went to a smarter egg network all day event with adon enright so adon thanks a million for running that very interesting really good check out the smarter egg online adon enright thanks for running that and finally i would have released the blog on 100 days without alcohol during the week Um, i'm recording this a bit early because i'm unable to record it on thursday night which i normally would do so hopefully that's come out if you haven't read it yet check it on the blog and uh, hopefully you might get something out of it seven key things that uh, were takeaways for me in the first hundred days and i think one of them certainly is uh, being happier if i can say that i think probably generally happier but it was others that have mentioned it to me that seem to think i'm in a happier place which is good that's a benefit so right on to this week's episode with professor ted dynan ted was uh, connected to me through my own doctor because uh, my doctor and i were talking about the podcast and talking about kind of groundbreaking research that's been done in Cork. Uh, Ted is a professor in UCC. He's also a physician. And I was delighted to chat with him around the area of the gut. He's a principal investigator in the APC Microbiome Institute. And the work he's doing is focusing around this area of psychobiotics. So it's a term that Ted coined a few years ago. And it focuses on how bacteria can help our mood and overall mental health. We also talk about the book, The Psychobiotic Revolution, that was released just last year, where Ted, along with his UCC colleague, John F. Cryan, and another colleague from the US, Scott C. Anderson, put that together and released it all about the impact of psychobiotics could have on our mood into the future. There's lots of really useful, simple tips that Ted shares around health and well-being probiotics psychobiotics and not just food but also the importance of exercise in your mental health ted not only is a researcher but he's also as i said a a clinical 
physician and he focuses on treating patients with severe forms of depression. Ted puts out a statistic that something like 80 to 90 percent of people recover fully from depression and using some of these new techniques and potentially psychobiotics in the future that hopefully will even increase more or even prevent people getting depressed in the first place. It's a really interesting episode. I really hope you enjoy it. As always, if you're new to the show, thanks so much. It's great to have you along. I would love you to take a few minutes to follow on one of the socials or sign up and subscribe on iTunes. That's always beneficial. It helps put the show high up so that others can actually see it and maybe click into it and get that whole thing rolling if you've returned to the show that's awesome too thanks for coming back i really mean that and it's always very much appreciated to have you along so without me further rambling along please enjoy the podcast with professor ted dynan this morning on location again uh, in UCC. I think it's the first time I've done a, an episode from UCC and I'm with Ted Dynan. So this would be effectively a TED Talk, which is probably a bit cheesy, but sorry about that. Give yourself an introduction, maybe. Who is Ted Dynan? What is Ted Dynan all about? Uh, if you can squeeze that in based on your bio here, if you can do that in within a minute, you'd be doing well. So, I'm a professor of psychiatry in UCC and I'm principal investigator in the APC um, microbiome institute um, my uh, clinical activity pretty much revolves around treating patients with severe forms of depression that's what I primarily focus on from a research perspective um, our research group here which I run w- with my friend and colleague John Crine we, we mainly look at how microbes within the intestine influence brain function and influence mental health that's really the essence of what we we do okay that's an area that i'm have been really interested in maybe not to the specifics intuition is something i uh, talk a lot about on this show uh do a lot of reading into and uh, i watched another ted talk i think a couple of years ago trying to find the guy's name but he talked about the amount of cells in your intestine or in your gut that are effectively brain cells yes and and i know in the, the book that you have out this kind of second brain mentality yeah brain indeed cell. yeah yeah i i mean the the enteric nervous system which is the nervous system in the intestine has been referred to as the second the second brain and the brain gut axis is something that has been studied for several decades now but it's only over the last 15 years or so that bacteria within that system have been studied um, and we've been very fortunate in the sense that we were I suppose in this area of research when it was probably unfashionable to be um, it's become quite a fashionable area of research now um, when I was a medical student we were thought that there were bacteria in our intestine they didn't do us any good and they didn't do us any harm either right. we now know that they're pretty fundamental we obviously feed them And they, in turn, produce molecules that our brain and other organs in our body require. Um, So it's very much a symbiotic relationship. We feed them and they look after us in various ways. Just even touching on when you were in medical school. Yes. Was there a link between neuroscience and and that at that stage? Or when did that start to come up? No, really. Well, I suppose there would have been a link between brain and gut, but not really incorporating the bacteria. It was more, you know the gut 
as a as a as a as a um a muscle and the gut as a nervous system but mm. not the gut containing a lot of microbes and the reality is the gut contains about a kilo to a kilo and a half of bacteria so i mean three pounds of sugar is worth basically of bacteria in the intestine it's a lot of bacteria mm. it's about the same weight as as the human brain right um and biochemically, it's a very complex system because these bacteria are capable of producing a massive quantity of different molecules. Mm. Um, and there are very different bacteria in our intestine as well. So there's a lot of DNA, obviously, in these bacteria. And, um, you know, I, I often say, and I, and I genuinely believe it to be true, you know, when you look at human cells, our cells contain a standard set of DNA. Yeah. And that DNA is essential for the functioning of our bodies. Well, the bacteria have a lot of DNA that we need as well. We need their DNA to produce molecules. And if we were to take all the DNA in the bacteria that we require, our cells wouldn't be big enough to incorporate that DNA. Okay. So, in fact... You know, we really are pivotally dependent upon these bacteria. And we've never, of course, we've always had bacteria. It's not as though we've ever been free of bacteria. And I'm not sure that humans would have evolved in the way we have if it wasn't for the presence of bacteria. Right. So our our evolution has been determined, at least in part. And, you know, I've, I've, I've argued in some of the papers that we've published that, in fact, our social development as individuals is partly attributable to, to bacteria. Mm. Um, and, you know, what I suppose is interesting from a medical point of view and from, I think, you know, your listeners will, will find it interesting as well, is we can change the DNA in ourselves. I mean, you know, we're born with, with, with DNA that we acquire from our parents and we can change the, the nature of that DNA, not, mm-hmm. not read, 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 readily anyway. Yeah. But of course, we can change the DNA in the bacteria because the bacteria can be changed. Well, they can be changed radically by antibiotics, obviously. Yeah. But they can also be changed quite significantly by the food we eat. Right. So if we eat a lot of junk food, we're going to have a, a radically different set of DNA mm-hmm. and a radically different set of bacteria than if we're on a very healthy diverse diet yeah interesting fascinating stuff and maybe we'll come back to that yeah. in a little bit when we talk about the book and yeah sure the diet can affect affect your mood and another thing that came up for me there and i yeah. didn't think about asking this but i probably will that there's this crispr have you heard of crispr yeah this yeah indeed yeah yeah indeed, is yeah. that a genetic yeah. well it's a it's a it's a, a, te- it's a technology technique. really for engineering dna engineering, for, for cutting yeah. out maybe segments of DNA and yeah. putting in other segments. It was developed from bacteria, but of right. course it's now being applied to, to human cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the evidence would suggest that as we go forward in terms of treating cancers and yeah. and in other ways, it's a phenomenal technology. Yeah, yeah, it's like cutting and pasting, I guess. It is, yeah, it is very much so, yeah, absolutely. Won't, won't go down that route, but just, yeah, yeah. just a touch on it. What I am fascinated about in all these stories that I talk to people is yeah. is where this fascination for your I suppose the world you live in comes from and if you can pinpoint kind of a part in your development in your formative years yeah. that yeah. wanted 
me to become a psychiatrist or, yeah, or yeah, you know, to lead yeah, you to where you and yeah, I, it's a memory yeah. lane thing and I, yeah. I love the, the question because yeah, I, I yeah. see people going into the things and, and what I like to ask sometimes is other thing is, yeah. what's your earliest memory and is there a memory that springs up that somehow could evolve into where, where you've gone where you are now well I I, I, I went to school in, in Christians here in Cork, CBC. I went there both primary and secondary. And I remember in second year, in, in the secondary school, we had a teacher called Mr. McCarthy, who seemed like a very elderly gentleman at the time. He, I don't know what age he was looking back now. But I remember, you know, he thought of science. And I remember one day he put a chart up of the human body and he started talking about organs and the human body. And I decided, look, I think this is very interesting. I think I'll become a doctor. Right. Now, there's no medicine in my family or anything yeah, yeah. else, so I wasn't following any family line of right. genetic doctors or anything like that. Um, but Ooh. that was, for me, the moment when I decided I was going to do medicine. And I suppose, in some ways, it's been the fascination all along. I mean, I, I like seeing patients, and I regard it as a privilege to be able to treat patients but I wouldn't want to do it five days a week. I mean, mm. for me, the real fascination and the thing that has driven me throughout my career is a fascination with human biology and particularly with how the human brain works. And that's why I'm, I'm in psychiatry. I mean, people are in psychiatry for all sorts of reasons. Um, uh, you know, I, I had no experience with mental health issues when I came into psychiatry. My main fascination with psychiatry and the reason I became a psychiatrist is that I'm interested in how the brain biology influences behavior and how changes in brain biology can produce very unusual or abnormal behavior in the forms of schizophrenia and other mental illnesses right. and it's that fascination which drives me and you know I've been in I've been a consultant since I was about 30 years of age so I'm a consultant for over 30 years at this stage and um you know that's still the issue that fascinates me mm. growing up i had a passion around psychology as yeah. well couldn't yeah. figure out where yeah. again like it wasn't yeah. anything that yeah. was in the family yeah. or or, or yeah. whatever but it was like oh i like psychology or trying yeah. to understand yes. other people yes and i didn't go down that route i yeah. went down it and yeah, kind sure, of working yeah. my way back around yes. to that i do coaching yes. people and i'm still fascinated about yeah. this when i'm doing this show yeah was there a time when you said, right, I want to be a doctor? It was probably quite broad at that stage and things started to kind of narrow into a specific Indeed. area. Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, within a short period of time of being in medical school, I decided that psychiatry was the thing I would like to do. Right. And after I left medical school and I interned in the old North Infirmary, which is now closed, which is terrible, I think, that we don't have a hospital on the north side of Cork City. I think it's a disgrace. Yeah. But... um. The uh, I, I I worked I actually did a degree in psychology here in Cork. Okay. And at the same time, I did it. It was supposedly a full time degree, but I was working as an SHO in psychiatry up in Saint Anne's Hospital here in Cork. Right. Um, and I kind of combined the two, and I must say, I got an enormous amount from that psychology degree. I, I still have friends that were doing psychology there at the time. Right. And um, it was something that, um, you know, I, 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 
from a, a, a developmental or learning yeah, yeah, yeah. experience, it, it was wonderfully good. And I decided I would do a PhD. Subsequently, I went to New York and I was in oh. London. I was abroad for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my research, I suppose, after doing the basic psychology degree did become more biological. But um, but I, I must say, from my perspective, the psychology degree was uh, was something I certainly value, and I'm glad I did it. Yeah, and and all the while you felt, yeah, this is the right path I'm going on. Oh yeah, yeah I've never, never I have, I have no regrets in relation to the direction I've taken. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I see myself as a physician who practices psychiatry. You know, I mean, I, I, I think I'm a reasonably good general doctor, right. and I never want to leave that kind of behind you know yeah um and i think that that's not true necessarily of all psychiatrists some some of them wouldn't be as interested in general medicine as i am i'm very interested in gastroenterology and endocrinology and other areas of medicine um but i see prim- myself primarily as, as as a physician who practices psychiatry okay very good Growing up, or even in the early stages during college, was there specific influences that jump out, or was there a specific, I suppose, research that you were doing that that stands out from that time? Well, to be honest, as a medical student, the only thing I did around here was have fun. I learned okay. very little. Right, you still I, managed to get I, through it. I though. just that was about tough. scraped my way through it. Yeah, I, did, yeah. I, did, I learned very little. Right, right. I, I, so most of what I've learned has been after I left. Yeah, I can I can compare that yeah. very closely to myself. <laughs> like, yeah, I do a lot of reading and. You know, Victor Frankl and those sort of psychologists or yeah. at the time were, I, I, not at the time, at the time for me now, were very interesting, fascinating. Was there any specific school or area that you were fascinated um, about? I, I won't say that there was, a, I, I suppose I was interested in Freud when I was in medical school and I read a lot of, of his stuff and I would look back in it now and say most of it was semi-deranged and he made did, he did make some contributions to psychology that are clearly you know, groundbreaking, but I think a lot of his, his, um, you know, a lot of the case histories he wrote were, looking back on it, were partly fabricated and more fic- fictional than they were, you know, based on on on, on reality. Yeah. So, I, so I was, but I was interested and and influenced by Freud at that stage, and I love novels. I always have loved novels. I read a, a reasonable amount, and and uh, I suppose as a medical student, I I, I really enjoyed existential novels i still do i like existential novels okay. and you know albert camus would have been certainly somebody i whose work i would have really liked and, and still do i'd go back and read camus uh no even now um and um you know so so they would have been i think the in in terms of what i was reading they would have been the things that influenced me okay very interesting i like to ask questions around maybe turning points or or a, a point where your path moved from one direction to another. You mentioned you going to to New York and doing a lot of traveling, yeah. doing a PhD. Yeah. Was there a a breakthrough moment uh, that stands out from from when you've got through college to got into the the working world? Um, well, I I went to New York and I worked with a big name in electrophysiology at the time, and I used to do intracellular or, or, or physiology, looking at single cells and their electrical activity. Right. And it was it was it was very difficult. I mean, I was out. I was. I had never worked or lived outside Cork, New yeah. York, 
the guy I was working with would work 16 hours a day. I, I'm certainly not lazy, but, you know, <laughs> it was just, you know, work night and day sort of job. Right. Uh, it generated papers, so that gave me a CV that was able to get me good jobs back here in Ireland or yeah. wherever I wanted to work, really, yeah. you know. Um, but I decided, really, when I came back to Trinity College in Dublin, which was my first proper academic job as a senior lecturer, that this sort of research was not compatible with being a doctor and practicing clinical work. It was just, it was, it was okay. too difficult. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of uh, did change my line of research at that stage. And for many years, I worked in neuroendocrinology, really, I suppose, looking at the, the hormonal um, influences on stress. Right. And my, my, I suppose I'm interested in depression. So obviously a lot of depression is caused by stress. Not all of it, but a lot of it is. Yeah. And the biology underlying that is largely hormonal or humoral. And throughout a lot of my career, certainly for 15 or more years of my career, I spent my time working on that bio, biology of stress in Trinity College. And then I went back to London. I used to be chair of clinical neurosciences in St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. Yeah. And my line of research there was very much the same, look, trying to find uh, an understanding for the biology underlying stress and see if there were ways in which we could alter that biology, you know, which might be of relevance for treating depression or or, 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 or whatever. Looking back in it now, I think, you know, I published a lot. Um, I'm not sure that I, I think a lot of it was an intellectual cul-de-sac. I don't think that I've, you know, there's some of the papers I look back and think, yeah, they were reasonably okay. But there's, would I pick anything there and say it was groundbreaking? You know, maybe at the time I thought it was groundbreaking, but looking back in it now, I'd be far more harsher in my criticism of it and say it was limited enough. Yeah, I suppose the process that you go through when you are doing research, yeah. has that, based on what you said there, has that evolved during the year? Like, was there a point in the early stages that it might have been a cul-de-sac, you said, but I'm still going down to the end of it because I can't throw away that amount of effort? Or was there kind of forces at play that might have um, changed there? Well, I suppose I've always been pragmatic in the sense that, you know, I'll use, I'll, I'll use what facilities are available anywhere. When I was in London at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, at the time, it was one of the central neuroendocrine centers in the world. Right. So it was a good place to do the sort of research I was doing. Um, uh, and and I did likewise in Trinity College when, when, when I was there and consulting in James's Hospital. Um, but, you know, I gave up that line of research when I came back to Cork okay. and I've been doing the current job for 15 years now so you know quite right. a long period of time um, and when I did come to Cork um, back home back to my roots really um, I looked around UCC and the question was you know were there elements here that were world-class or potentially world-class that I could collaborate with yeah. and microbiology in Cork is very very strong and it is a very strong tradition of very good quality microbiology i'm not a microbiologist but 
I bring certain research approaches to the table and I've begun collaborating with people with a microbiology background and the APC was set up at the time funded by Science Foundation Ireland. So it's been a very productive 15 years from my perspective. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and continue to enjoy it. And I'm very fortunate in having really good colleagues and, and friends whom I, I work closely with. Yeah. The learnings you've taken from working around stress and depression, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you feel that all the while the experiences you've had with that kind of contribute to, I guess, some of the work you're doing now? And oh, absolutely. Draw on a lot of absolutely. That? Because even now, I mean, a lot of what I'm doing is looking at the microbiota, the collection of microbes in the gut and how they influence stress. And that is one of my primary interests. And of course, I am influenced by my patients. And, you know, I see patients who are depressed all the time. Sure. And, you know, one is influenced by their experiences and about their treatments and you know, when when they work and most of the time people get better. You know, I, as I keep saying to people who are depressed, you know, people are obviously sometimes they come in, they don't know what the diagnosis is and you say you're depressed and they don't want to hear maybe that. And I point out that in fact, you know, 80 or 90% of people with severe depression make a 100% recovery. Right. Um, and that there's lots of people going to Cork University Hospital and other hospitals who have illnesses that are not re- amenable to therapy or may have a dreadful outcome and depression isn't one of them because people with depression in general get better. Right. We'll be talking about the book now, so the the psychobiotic yeah. revolution. Yeah. Just out just before Christmas late last year, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It came out in November and uh, the Irish launch was only last week in fact. But um it, it, it's a book that, you know, there's three of us involved in it. Yeah. Uh, there's Scott Anderson who is um a friend and collaborator in in, in the US and John Cryan, who's my colleague and friend here in UCC, and the three of us worked on the book. And it really looks at how microbes in our gut influence our brains, influence the way we feel, the way we think, and really how we might best be able to modulate our gut microbes uh, in the best interest of our mental health. Okay. So maybe go into more details around what that means to you know, me or, or the lay person and Indeed. how they can actually Indeed. improve. Well, I think in the book we go into a lot of detail about probiotics, for instance. Yeah. And there's a lot of claims made in relation to probiotics. And some of these claims are, to say the least, um, spurious. They're, right. they're being made by companies who have no data, have a bacteria, put it on them, put it into health food stores and say, this is good for stress or it's good for your bowel or it's good for whatever. Yeah. And they have no data behind it. Right. And, you know, we're a research centre, so we're not interested in making claims about any bacteria, really. Yeah. Um, and, and we're not paid to do that. Um, but um, so our aim, I, I suppose, in relation to probiotics was to um, look at various bacteria and test them in both animals and in humans and see if we can improve mental functioning using bacteria. Right. And the concept of a psychobiotic is one that we came up with. And the, the, the first paper we published now was quite a few years ago on this concept of a psychobiotic, which is a bacteria which when we ingest it in adequate amounts, it has a positive mental health benefit. Right. And when I put that idea forward 
originally, it seems to have caught on in the sense if you Google it now, you look at it up in PubMed, a lot of people use the term psychobiotic. Okay. Have you coined it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I coined okay. the term. Sure. And, you know, it's the essence of the book really is, are there psychobiotics out there? Are there bacteria with a positive mental health benefit? And what we could say is most of the bacteria we've tested have no impact at all on mental health. Okay. But we have worked with bacteria that most definitely have. I mean, you know, recently there now we've been working with the bacteria Bifidobacteria longum, um, a specific strain of that. And we found in mice that when they were given this bacteria, they were far less anxious and their 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 cognitive function, their memory and so forth was a lot better. Right. And we decided we would test that in humans. Now, a lot of things work in mice, and when you put them into humans, they don't translate. Um, But to our surprise, we found that when humans were given the same bacteria, that they, and this was a placebo-controlled study, they felt less anxious. And indeed, on tests of cognitive function, there were cognitive functions that were improved. And interestingly enough, when we mapped their electrical activity in their so brain, it was altered. Stuff, it? it was it was we, we oh, used no. EEG mapping. Okay. Actually, we found the EEG patterns were altered when they took the probiotic. Right. So here was a probiotic that we took literally from scratch, where nobody had ever put it into humans. Right. We put it into mice first, and then we put it into humans, and we do find that it does have psychobiotic activity. It's clearly mm. positive from a mental health um, perspective. Um, no, there are other ways, obviously, of modulating the bacteria in our intestine, not necessarily involved in taking psychobiotics. Uh, you could take prebiotics. Yeah. Prebiotics are fibers which promote the growth of good bacteria. So they're not bacteria themselves, but they promote the growth of good bacteria. Okay. And there are things like inulin, which you find in chicory and celery and Jerusalem artichoke. They have high contents of inulin and they promote the growth of good bacteria. There are related fibers then like FOS and GOS and again they promote the growth of good bacteria. So so really we can have good bacteria because we ingest them in fermented foods or or in capsules, even you can put bacteria into a capsule obviously, or you can take a prebiotic which would induce or promote the growth of good bacteria. Okay. And the the first one, the the psychobiotic, the, yes. the one that you proved, yes. does have that. Does yeah. that is that in day to day foods at the moment that you can take, or is it something that you would have to? Um, the 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 psychobiotic or the probiotic that we're talking about at the moment, no, I, that that isn't commercially available. Right. But prebiotics, I mean, yeah, are, and I suppose are. you know you you can get them in a capsule form. But look, the best delivery system for most things is food, the yeah. food matrix. So I would recommend to anyone who wants to take in prebiotics to grow good bacteria in their intestine, you know, to look at, you know, um, you know, the the, the vegetables I I, I just mentioned and bananas, of course, and, you know, fresh bananas would have a reasonable content of inulin as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the food matrix is probably the best source of prebiotic mm. and that will induce the growth of good bacteria. And there's no doubt about it I, that, you know, taking in a junk food diet causes a constriction of bacteria in our intestine. I mean, I mean if you look at the, the work that Tim Spector in London has done, you know, where he 
showed that you know if you if you went on a McDonald's diet essentially for a, a week or two weeks, yeah, yeah, yeah. that the bacterial content of your intestine would shrink as a result. Okay. Now I'm sure even McDonald's wouldn't recommend that anyone go on an entirely yeah. McDonald's diet for two weeks. So I, I you know there's nothing wrong with it an occasional McDonald's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Big Mac. But uh, really, th- for, for good health, we need diversity of bacteria in our microbiota. And the only consistent way of generating a wide variety of bacteria in our intestine is to actually have a wide variety in our diet. A wide variety. So, okay. uh, you know, a diet that is is too restrictive is not going to be good for our microbiota. And when you look at the various types of diet out there, well, clearly the Japanese have a diet that tends to promote diversity. And in Europe, the the classic Mediterranean diet, which of course is common in Italy and Spain and wherever, that does promote diversity. And we know, for instance, that if you look at people in the Mediterranean region or people who are not necessarily in the Mediterranean region but who are on a Mediterranean diet, they suffer from less depression than people who do not. So there's undoubtedly a health benefit, a mental and not... There's obviously a cardiac benefit as well, but there's a mental health benefit from being on a Mediterranean diet. Okay. How much of the depression and I suppose stress and that is is influenced completely by your food, or is there a certain underlying element of that you're predisposed to that? Genetically? Well, I think that you know there are there are multiple factors that yeah. result in depression. Genetics is a factor, right. but not in everyone. But there are some families where clearly there is a genetic propensity for the emergence of depressive illness. Right. Early childhood adversity. We mentioned Freud earlier on, and I suppose one of his real contributions to psychology was to emphasize that childhood trauma can result in adulthood mental illness. So childhood trauma is extremely important. Now, most people who come to my clinic, not all, but most people who come to my clinic with depression have a, a... have been subjected to 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 stressors or life events prior to the onset of their depression but unquestionably um the microbiota does we understand now play a role in determining our stress responses and it would seem that the more diverse our microbiota is in terms of bacterial content the better our capacity to deal with stress you mentioned the probiotics and you talked about the the brain cognitive improved function yes. yeah new nootropics is that an area you're familiar with that, um, that that is meant to improve cognitive yeah uh, i mean there are a whole raft of i i, I suppose both um, supplements and indeed drugs that have been proposed right. that are cognitively enhancing and uh, you know there's a tendency i suppose for students to take you know uh, very various drugs um um modafinil is one drug that has you know been used i mean it's 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 licensed for treating um narcolepsy right um but it's been described as a smart drug yeah, yeah, yeah. um i don't really think that there's an awful lot of benefit in your average healthy individual right um um, but you know, people do take you know from flipping just plain high levels of caffeine to to to, to various drugs. Um, I think you know, if I was giving advice to students, 
and uh, you know whether students would take advice or not certainly my own kids at home who were students wouldn't necessarily listen to what I was saying <laughs> but what I would suggest is that you know in terms of learning one of the most important things is actually vigorous aerobic exercise mm-hmm. and you know if somebody is engaged in regular vigorous aerobic exercise their retention of new material is vastly improved so um whilst we're talking about diet here now and and one doesn't want to underestimate the importance of diet vigorous aerobic exercise has potent cognitive enhancing capacity and we know for instance that the only natural way of converting stem cells in the brain into new neurons is actually aerobic exercise Mm. uh when i was a medical student we were thought you were born with a certain number of cells in your brain. But we now know that there are, in fact, uh, stem cells in the human brain. Right. And these stem cells do become neurons. And there are different ways of stimulating them to become neurons. But the only natural physiological way of stimulating them is actually by vigorous aerobic exercise. Good. Good, good to hear. I'm glad uh, I'm doing a lot of that to keep me going. And it is certainly good for my, uh, you know... Uh, the whole endorphins and being able to feel better as well as being able to focus better over the last few years i think i've read again that more and more doctors are prescribing vigorous exercise for treatments of depression oh, and stress. absolutely that that is certainly true and I, I think that we should be doing it far more than we actually are um i you know if you go to a cardiologist and you have ischemic heart disease obviously the cardiologist is going to recommend an exercise regime and i suppose if you go to a diabetologist maybe they might do likewise but i think for too long in psychiatry we've neglected the importance of diet and exercise and that's one of my if i you know i don't want to use the term grandiose term like mission or whatever but if it any darn mission you know in terms of the impact i try to have in psychiatry it's to promote the importance of diet and exercise in the treatment of mental health problems yeah and you've seen on the front line that change over the last 15 20 years even in your own practice well i think in my own practice i don't i don't see it generally no i don't i think that in general psychiatrists don't actually emphasize still no they don't i don't think so uh, I think that we do, you know, we do advocate psychological therapies. We obviously advocate the use of medications, but I think we really should, to a far greater extent, advocate the use of um, uh, more appropriate diets and aerobic exercise. Aerobic exercise is the most potent antidepressant we have. If you could put it into a capsule, you'd be a multi-billionaire within a short period of time. Yeah. yeah. What are the reasons, do you think, that, there's a slowness to to change towards that diagnosis prognosis um, I, I i think that really i suppose the research has only come along within the last couple of years okay. really and and it does take a while for research to translate into clinical practice you know i'm a researcher so obviously yeah. you know i'm reasonably au fait about what's going on in the literature but um you know i have no doubt you know that my colleagues in psychiatry will come along with this way of thinking over the next few years but i i I think from a patient perspective the sooner the better where to next then ted with your research where does the the next steps from the psychobiotic revolution right and what's the the plan well i you know 
for me, the next step or the next big step would be the really the the I suppose delineation of more appropriate treatment strategies for depression. In other words, could we have a psychobiotic or a combination of psychobiotics that were effective in treating depression? Now, I believe that for very severe forms of depression that they probably won't work. But I do believe that for mild to moderately severe forms of depression, that a combination of, of or maybe a single psychobiotic or maybe a combination of psychobiotics could very well be of major benefit to patients. And what I would like to see within the next, you know, three or four years is the emergence of a psychobiotic that would be readily available for treating milder forms of depression. People who have mild forms of depression do not always have access to psychological therapies. They don't necessarily want to take antidepressants. But if there were natural therapies out there available, such as a, a, a psychobiotic, I think that people would take them. And so m my goal certainly, you know, would be to try to help and promote the emergence of, of, of a psychobiotic for the treatment of depression and to see that reach the market as soon as possible. Okay. That's a, and that's something in a three to five year time. Yeah, I think it at. is because, you know, the, the, like if we were talking here about a new drug for treating depression, you're talking about 10 years minimum right. and a, a, probably a billion dollars as well in wow. development okay. costs. But because this is not a drug, it's not something with major side effects. Mm. You can, if you do the right studies, you could have a psychobiotic on the market within two to three years. Right. So the development costs are vastly less. Um, and, you know, in that sense, I would have thought it's attractive to yeah. a, a mass marketing company, a big pharma or whatever. And is there a difference there between treating the symptoms and treating the cause in a way with, with well, that? Well, I think that, you know, one needs to separate cause and 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 treatment when dealing with mental health issues. Okay. You know, it's a bit like, you know, if somebody's been smoking 40 cigarettes a day and develops COPD and they come in with an acute exacerbation of COPD, you know, they've been smoking 30 or 40 cigarettes for 40 years. Well, you can't do anything about that no, you know. And if, yeah, yeah. if they stop, so what? I mean, you know, right. they've got 30 or 40 years of damage done. You know, a lot of the time, you, you you treat the depression which is in front of you. If you can deal with the cause, I mean, obviously, one does sure. something about that. But if somebody has bad genes and there's been depression in their family for four or five generations, yeah, there's yeah. not much you're going to do about that, that's for sure. Right. Um, you know, likewise, you know, you know, there there may be issues that in their environment that you can change and there may be issues that you can do absolutely nothing about. From listening to other podcasts and, and, and reading, they talk about the potential use of psychedelics in even yes, treating yes, uh, yes. depression and yeah stress. absolutely yeah, yeah what's your your view on, on that well, or is well any... i mean i i you know david nutt who's promoted that in the uk who's been the primary promoter of that in the uk um he was actually giving a lecture in my department uh, a few months but two or three months ago um Look, I've high respect for David Nutt on a personal basis. He's done some good research in the past. I think that this approach is absolutely daft. Right, okay. Um, I, I think it is absolutely daft. <laughs> I think that we have enough 
trouble with illicit drugs as it is. Um, I think LSD is potentially a dangerous, mind-altering drug that can be profoundly damaging in the wrong hands. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm even a ver- highly averse, I, you know, and I wouldn't have said this when I was a student. I would not have been an anti-cannabis, but I right. have seen so much. Uh, I, I've worked in areas, you know, where there was a lot of cannabis usage and you get high levels of psychosis. And I'm absolutely right. convinced that people who are vulnerable to the emergence of schizophrenia biologically, if they smoke cannabis are much more likely to develop schizophrenia. So I'm not only just against the therapeutic use of things like LSD or or ecstasy, I'm against against the use of cannabis as well. No, look, there may be occasional medical scenarios like chemotherapy and use nausea or whatever where cannabis use is is appropriate but i certainly wouldn't like us to go down the route of legalizing it i'm very much against that approach okay good insight and uh maybe i'll i'll get your colleague on the on the show to (laughs) counteract that it'd be a good a good one um one area that i'm fascinated about and probably lines into a lot of what you're talking about is is kind of the the mindfulness and meditation yes What's yes. your your take on on that as as kind of a a variable in the whole managing your mind and your stress level? I depression? I, I I believe in psychological approaches to the management of uh, of, of stress and management of psychiatric illnesses. I, I, I particularly like cognitive behavior therapy. I think it's very effective for treating depression. Right. I think you know the whole kind of. Uh, mindfulness Buddhist kind of ideology is just uh, you know it's just uh, emerging in, in largely I suppose from the US but, but yeah, clearly yeah. influential in Europe as well mm. I think you know we've seen the demise of conventional religions and I see this as just simply you know an alternative mm. to, to, to conventional religion am I personally um, uh, am I convinced by a lot of the data well, look, I think that relaxing and kind of being a bit mindful is is not going to do any of us any harm. Yeah. But I, I, I think the whole notion of this kind of Buddhist ideology and and the fact that it's good for treating various forms of mental illness, I, I'm highly sceptical and right. really, you know, I, you know, as I say, I think that in, in, a, in, a, in a fast-paced world, sitting down and taking time to reflect is very good. Yeah. And I, and, and I do think that you know, looking over your shoulder and having regrets about the past isn't good. Spending too much time thinking about the future isn't good. Yeah, yeah. So focusing on the present, yes, I'm in favour of it to an extent. Yeah, yeah. But I think being overly mindful isn't a good thing either. Take too much of Take the successful like, yeah. person. Are they going to be mindful? I mean, if you're going to forget about the future and live for the day, yeah, you're not going yeah. to be particularly successful taking that sort of, a, a, of an approach. So really... I, I, Pragmatic I'm not mindfulness, going, maybe, or something. To, maybe yeah. you know, but I mean, overall, I think that too many claims are being made for mindfulness at the moment. Far too many claims. Yeah. It's a bit like fake news. There's a lot of fake science out there. You look at Flipboard, and every day you'll find some rubbish on mindfulness. Right. Much of it is, which is poorly <laughs> controlled studies making outlandish claims. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely, there's a huge movement around it, right? And personally, I, I just. From my experience, I I would have had, I would have been quite anxious a few years ago. Yes. When, certainly with with stresses and strains yes. at work. Yes. And I got into it, uh, and I do it pretty yes. much every day. But I also yeah. run nearly yeah, every day, indeed, and I, yeah. I kind of have a mix. Yeah. And it, 
I don't know if it just opened up a doorway and it just made me look at the world a little bit differently and doesn't get as much wound up about it. You know, yes. I, I certainly see benefits from that perspective. But I do think a lot of organizations are maybe jumping on it a little bit as a a marketing tool for, oh, for how, how they're, yeah. you know, yeah. using this to uh, improve employee satisfaction and wellness yes. and stuff like yes. that. So there's yes. a huge, there is, yeah. I got into a debate on, on LinkedIn is, yeah. actually with yeah. a couple of people on this recently. But but yeah, no, it's interesting to, to see that. And I, I think the one thing I say is mindfulness can be in many forms. So like we talked about running before we went on, yes. you, know, you, can, you can be mindful running oh yeah and i think if you're running really long distances you have to be mindful yeah yeah. you know if you're over 15 miles you have to be pretty mindful i think it almost happens automatically when i looked into when i found going over the 10 mile barrier i feel you're you just drop down a little bit and stop thinking about the past and the future a lot oh you do yeah you do yeah you get into the zone you have to if you're going to survive on the road i mean if anyone who's ever run a marathon and I, I I enjoy running marathons, but anyone who's ever run a marathon will appreciate that when you get up to the high levels, if you're not going to crash into the wall, you, you've got to be in the zone. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. if you lose, you know, this business of, you know, people say, you know, they, they, they like to concentrate on other things. But in fact, you've really got to concentrate in the here and now to really be effective in long distance running. Yeah, absolutely. And my experience I've noticed when I do trail running versus maybe yes, road yes, running, yes. I find that I'm more immediately in the here and now with the trails just because you're watching You've, every step. Indeed. And you know where you're going yes. because you can much higher propensity to fall over. Indeed. Indeed. Know, so that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. This has been great so far, Ted. We've only another few more minutes yeah. just to kind of wrap up on some questions. Uh, I suppose around your own ability to be productive. And I like sharing these ideas. You know, you've, you've been a physician and you're doing research constantly mixing the two how do you develop a work-life balance you know how how do you keep things going um i i suppose i've always had outside interests you know i mean my wife and kids are my main outside interest but um you know in terms of what i enjoy doing i mean i love reading novels i love movies um and i love running Right. And no matter what I'm doing, I'll always keep some time for those activities. Um, I like to have a novel ongoing. Right. And since I've been a kid, I've always ran. I mean, I run, I don't run every day. I would if I could, but yeah, yeah. I run most days of the week. And and I love it. Yeah. It's never been a, a chore or has, is, it, is it you find a struggle to get out in the middle of January and, you know, on a horrible uh, day? And- for a short run, like... Because I, I run most days, if I go for a four or five mile run, that can be a chore. If I'm very busy, I find that a chore. Right. On a Saturday, maybe if I'm not working and I go off and I do a 15 or a 16 mile run, that for me is bliss. bliss. I mean, I love that, you know, just get out there and, you know, get into the zone. And it is absolutely, I can think of nothing better than doing 15 or 16 miles when there's, yeah. you know, you're relaxed. On a day like today maybe yeah, as well. Yeah. For somebody that's worked around stress and depression, yeah. how do you deal with stress yourself? Um, the secrets to, to, to share? I, 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 I don't think I have any major secrets to share at all, and I'm not sure how effectively I, I personally <laughs> deal with stress. I mean, it never gets me to, to a point where I'm impaired or I can't function. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for me, um, 
exercise is probably the thing that I use most to deal with stress. Um, you know, I, 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 I always advise patients to make sure that their sleep pattern is normal. Mm. Of course, in medicine, that's much more, more difficult. Of course, you know, look, I've been in the game a long time and I'm not the rotas I'm involved in now are nothing like the rotas I started out. I remember when I started out as an intern, you know, there would be weeks we'd work 80 or 90 hours. Yeah. And you'd have to function and you wouldn't get too much sleep then. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, maintaining good sleep hygiene is extremely important. Mm. And if one is busy, I think it's very important that one doesn't get into a pattern of just eating junk food. I think that that is a real slippery slope right. to, 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 to poor mental health. Mm. Very true. The sleep is a question I love to ask and you kind of touched on it based on your research, based on your own what what's your kind of sleep pattern? What do you do you have to have X amount of hours to well, function? I I properly? don't I don't get it every night, but I I for, I actually need eight hours a night. Right. I actually I do not. I mean, I, you know, I'm somebody who can miss a night's sleep and I can function. And I suppose I've learned that in medicine over the years that yeah. you can miss one night and you know you get on with it. If I miss two nights sleep, I'm a complete wreck and I'm not functioning at all. Yeah. Um, but optimally i actually need, need eight hours sleep and if i don't get eight hours sleep i'm not functioning you at notice full. it almost i would quickly. i would i really am not and there's certain things i can do that i can't do I, if i'm really tired i can't write for instance yeah. i ca- cannot write yeah. i might be able to do a clinic but i couldn't write yeah would to, to that then would would you be more productive writing in would you focus it in the mornings as opposed to nights or do you do you have patterns that you're doing um, things in the mornings or I'd, I, to be honest what I try to do in, in my current job now is I tend to see patients in the first half of the week and I tend to do research and write in the second half of the okay, week okay. Uh, I like to get a good run at something if I'm writing a paper I like to start in the morning and try right. to get a good run at that's that's not always easy because there are you know you yeah. need to see research people working with you or yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever but I, I i do like to get a good run at something um you know from the early morning and go as long as you can and around productivity there the question i typically ask is sometimes people are more productive if they have a block of four hours or, or a full day to yeah. get stuff done yeah. as opposed to 30 minutes a day yeah for five days. i can't i can't write like that i mean right. you know i i just it would take me 30 minutes to just get into get the into groove yeah. so I, I i wouldn't even waste my time at this right, stage right, now right. trying to write for 30 minutes i mean i might try to edit something over 30 minutes but i'd never try to be productive and yeah, write yeah, yeah. i i need a few hours to get anything written you know and i yeah. do write a reasonable amount i i, I kind of enjoy writing it's one of the privileges right. of what i do work-wise but um i need time yeah resistance to writing is something i'm reading a book on at the moment guy yeah. called uh, the war of art it's called by a guy called right. stephen pressfield yeah. have you heard of it no little handbook it was yeah. recommended to me yeah brilliant yeah, yeah. And it's about you try to do a bit of writing the mornings and uh it's overcoming that resistance and the yeah. resistance he says is the most evil thing in the world yeah but it's internal and you have it to is yeah just do the work yeah, yeah. And it'll it'll all magically yeah. happen yeah, and come together like, yeah. do you ever get that writer's block or a I, kind of well uh, my 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 philosophy is you know write even when you think it's trash yeah and eventually it'll come round. Yeah. but i wouldn't sit in front of the computer doodling and thinking i don't have a great idea in my head right i'd, I'd do something anyway and no matter how bad it was and i might look back on it a few days later and say it was trash yeah, yeah but yeah. i think unless you write the trash 
it's hard to get, yeah. you know. I mean, there are people with great novels in their head, I'm sure, oh, yeah. and they go to their graves and they never get them out. Um, so waiting for a brainwave, you could be waiting a long time. Yeah, and just getting it out is, yeah, is very good. It, is, yeah. it clears the, yeah. the junk oh, it does, yeah, absolutely. One question around decision making. Yeah. Do you go with your gut, quote unquote, or, or, or how, how do you come to making a decision? Is it a mix of brain and, and gut? For me, it's mainly, I well, whatever, whatever bit of a brain I've got is brain. I'm a big believer, Data. you know, when I have a problem, I sit down with a pen and paper. And I try to rationally work out the problem, right. looking at the pros and cons of, okay. of a decision I've got to make and then coming to the decision. And I usually stick to it, stick with it when I make it. But I, right. I, I'm a big believer in, you know, sitting down with a pen and paper or, you know, uh, on your computer and just just analyzing the problem. I, 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 I tend not to go with, you know, look, there's an occasional time, I suppose, in one's personal life, you may go with a gut instinct but if it was you know a big decision career wise or whatever you know no i would i would sit down and and try to work it out and try to come to a rational decision okay brilliant i'm going to ask three more quick ones and then we're good because we're on a roll here um best piece of advice you've ever been given or maybe best piece of advice you've ever given if they're the same um that's an interesting one um I mean, I'm always, I suppose, trying to give advice to my children. But, you know, the problem with being, you know, an 18 or 19 year old is I, I'd love to be back at 18 or 19. What advice you know, would you give your 18 or 19 year old self? I'd like to be going back with the same knowledge I've got now rather than as an 18 or 19 year old. Mm. Um and I'm not sure that I changed that much in my own life if I, yeah. if, I if if I did do that, you know. Um, um, I, I remember when I was a medical student, halfway through, thinking, you know, I'd like to be a writer. Maybe I should pull out of this, you know. Right. And 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 become a writer. And I I absolutely warn my kids, and I, I have a kid who's studying law at the moment. I, I would warn them against such instincts you know right. I, I am because i think there are too many black swan jobs you know or professions like acting you know i mean you know there's a handful of people in hollywood make a fortune yeah, and most yeah. actors i know are Double scraping absolutely and finding it very difficult and yeah. exactly and finding it so hard to make a living and the same with writers and you know so I, I most definitely did not come into medicine to make money and I didn't come into it because it runs in my family. Yeah. I, and and I really haven't even made much money out of medicine. I'm reasonably good at making money, but if I've made any money, it most definitely hasn't been as a doctor. Right. I, 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 I just don't equate making money with medicine. I've okay. never charged a patient in my entire career. Well. Um, but I would suggest to my kids you know, that they take a profession or a career path that gives them a good quality of life. And I think you need money to have a good quality of life. Mm. 
So, so that's the advice the, I give my kids. Yeah, it's the blend between your your passion and and something that and pragmatism, pragmatism that gives you a decent lifestyle. You know. Yeah. And I think you need to find your passion because if you don't find that, you know, I'd hate to I'd hate to have to come into work every morning and think it was a chore. Yeah. And I've never really had to come to work thinking I'm actually doing a day's job and I'm in here from nine to five. Yeah, it, yeah. it has never been like that, and I'm privileged, and I realise that. Um, and I'd like my kids to be in a similar scenario but but there's no point in doing something that you you are you know you, you think is wonderful fun but it doesn't give you a living or any sort of quality of life or lifestyle you know yeah no no that's good good tips to, to live by there um you've had a successful career from from a, from looking in yeah would you consider it success or what does success mean to you um I well, I'd never. To be honest, when I look at what I've done, I would be kind of critical, you know. And I'm not, you know. I have no grandiose notions of what I've successfully, what I've done. Really, I, I, I genuinely don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider myself privileged. I, I consider myself privileged that I had the opportunity to do what I've done, and I've had a lot of fun along the way. Um, and I hope I've published a few papers that may have some impact in the long run on the literature. Yeah. And I've had a lot of, I, I've had enormous privilege in being able to treat thousands of patients over the years. And I hope, you know, most of them have thought I was a, a nice person who tried to help them. Yeah. Um, um, but, uh, you know, no, I, 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 as I say, overall wouldn't be of the opinion that I've made any major contribution or, you know, I wouldn't, I don't have any such grandiose notions, to be honest. Right. But to that, I guess the fact that doing what you've done is success, I suppose. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Look, if somebody said to me, you know, when I came into UCC as a pre-medical student in 1973, right. you know, w- would you end up as a professor? I didn't want to be a professor. Uh, if you, w- if you asked me then, would I have considered that a success? I would. Right. So cool. in that sense, yeah. I, I've done what I probably yeah. would have wanted or am happy to have done. Yeah, and you strike us strike me as somebody that's pretty content and happy with what you're doing. Yeah, I am. Yeah, to, to I am. Yeah, I'm very at. fortunate in that sense. Yeah. Last one, then you talk about you mentioned books a lot. Yeah, uh, I love reading yeah. ferociously and listening yeah. to books as well. Yeah. There was one or two that stand out that have had an impact on you that maybe somebody could read that you know changed their way. Um, anything come to mind? Well, you know what? Over the last week or two, I've been reading short stories that I've read previously, but I got a collection of the the, the entire collection of, of short stories that Guy de Maupassant wrote. And I think he was a guy who died in his early 40s. They're the most psychologically insightful short stories I think that one could come across. I I, I don't speak French, so I wasn't right. reading them in the original French. I was I was reading them in 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 in, in English. But I think they're wonderful. Um, I think that you know there have been some notable medical doctors who've written literature of a wonderful quality. I mean, if you look at let's say Anton Chekhov's short stories they're 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 wonderful absolutely you know wonderful and these are fictional stories they are yeah they are 
Yeah, and Bulgakov was a doctor as well. And of course, Bulgakov has written some wonderful stuff. I mean, Diary of a Country Doctor is absolutely wonderful. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there there are great novels out there. I mentioned Albert Camus, and I think that some of his stuff is 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 really quite quite amazing. Um, but um, yeah, novels can be very psychologically insightful, and mm. one can gain more psychological insight from novels often than from reading psychology textbooks. Yeah, yeah, a friend of mine have said something similar. I probably don't read half enough novels myself, and more on the, the factual. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah, novels. yeah, yeah. And obviously, there is another book that people should should read, and it's a psychobiotic revolution at the <laughs> moment. So, so just to wrap up, then this has been really interesting. Thanks so much for the time. How people could get in touch with you or or learn a little bit more about the book, give a shout out around that. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, you know, I I lecture in Cork a lot. I live here. Yeah. This is where this is this is where my base is. So you know, if anyone ever wants to hear me, I'm I'm sure I'm, you know, readily readily contactable. Really. Okay. Brilliant. Excellent. That was that was great. Thanks so much for your time today, Ted. Uh, looking forward to sharing this one with uh, with the community at large. Great. Thanks. Thank you. How was that? Did you enjoy it? I hope so. If you did, please like, share and do all that other good stuff that only takes a second on social media but means an awful lot to me as it spreads the reach. You can get the details from the show in the show notes on the website robofthegreen.ie in there you can share the show out with others i really just want to touch on three other quick things one feedback i learned so much from it without it i can't improve please give me a bit of feedback positive negative constructive would you recommend a book do you have any other ideas for guests how about more video let me know what you want and i can make it happen i will try that's number one number two sharing is caring this year i'm making more of an effort to try and expand the reach Facebook. There's a page and there's a group. The 1% Better Community on Facebook is where I really hope new listeners go to share ideas, comments, in general things that they could help others with. That's what it's there for. Follow me on Spreaker.com. That's the new host. I'm on Twitter growing, not exponentially at all, but slowly. So please follow there. I'm on Instagram. All of these are at Rob of the Green. LinkedIn, Rob O'Donoghue. Get in touch. Would love to hear from you. Number three is about support. So I'm offering a few hours a month pro bono free coaching to those that can't afford it that need some coaching, that want some coaching. If you go to the website, the support page, click on the pro bono link. On the flip side of that, where you guys can support me, go to patreon.com, the Rob of the Green page. You can make a donation there. You can get access to exclusive content, which I'm adding all the time. That would be awesome. Anything you contribute will go back into the show to make it better, make it more than 1% better. Also, there's the option to buy one of those books that were recommended through the website, which will bring you to Amazon, which will get you the normal links, which will get you the books at the normal price. But supposedly, Amazon will give the show a small donation every time a book is purchased or anything for that matter, which is great. So finally, I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. I know it's difficult to make improvements, to push things forward, to get outside your comfort zone. I'm trying to do it all the time. I hope that every listen and every show and every guest that is on gives you something to take away that you could apply, adopt and adapt into your own life to create a new habit, to make something better. Don't overreach. Small improvements. 1% is enough. And thank yourself 
for making the time to listen to the show. It shows you're interested in learning, improving and getting better, even if it's just 1% at a time. Have a great day and good luck.